News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. A story we've been talking quite a bit about over the last couple of weeks involves doctors, some of whom are undermining the fight against COVID-19, spreading misinformation. So what is the right way to approach this healthcare issue? Government officials, public health officers, others have all condemned the actions of these few doctors. But is that really the answer? How do you deal with this? There was a great couple of pieces on this uh, continuing coverage that you'll find at globalnews.ca. So check that out. But joining us now to talk more about it is Wayne Petrozzi, who's a professor emeritus in the Department of Politics and Public Administration. Thank you, Wayne, for joining us this morning. Oh, you're welcome. Now, what is the best way to deal with something like this? Or do you think in some cases you're just always going to have some people who disagree? Well, you know, the, the, the question of, of who regulates our, our, the various professions that uh, we rely on so for, for so many central public services, you know, has, has been a, a difficult question to, to get your arms around for as long as those professions have, have been in place. Uh, currently, we have a model in, in, across the provinces federally as well where professions, in effect, regulate themselves. So the College of Physicians, uh, the law societies, the you know the similar uh, organizations for architects and Ontario social workers, nurses, uh, teachers, all of whom have been granted this some some variation of self-regulation. And what self-regulation creates is is an issue of what's the likelihood that the regulators who see who are just like the people they're regulating are going to be able to incorporate the public interest into their decisions right so we expect that okay if there's a college if there if there's some regulation involved and there are rules involved that they have to follow but that doesn't seem like you know there's any consequences in this on these in these cases because one, many of these colleges have, have, have processes in place for when, when they are considering taking action against a member that are real complicated, very drawn out. Uh, in addition, many, in the case of, say, physicians here in Ontario, for example, uh, you know, they have access to a legal fund that, in fact, is, comes from the public, public purse, that uh, makes any hearing uh, complicated, drawn out, and uh, it deters actually the regulator from going after people who they otherwise might. That kind of defeats the purpose, though, doesn't it, Wayne? Because the whole point of having regulation is that there are rules that will be followed, and if you don't, we are going to, you know, look after this. But if it's too complicated, then what is the point of having the rules? I quite agree, and I think one of the the fundamental problem with with the self the self regulation model is really a, a lack of transparency, openness, uh, the absence of of any kind of protocols which require decisions to be underdone and or proceedings to be conducted and and decided upon in a reasonable fashion and thereafter made public. Yeah, we need more openness, more transparency, and we need to be, be assured that the regulators are, in fact, 
doing the job of are, regulating. I was going to say so that the regulators are regulating. When you look at cases like this, where there seems to be some quite egregious examples, are you surprised that they're not regulating? No, not surprised. I mean, here in, in Ontario, for example, we, we have currently a, a serious uh, uh, shortage of, of nurses, okay, numbering in the thousands. Right. And we also have in the province currently uh, thousands of foreign-trained nurses who have submitted the paperwork uh, to the College of Nurses to be approved to, to work in Ontario and be licensed, etc. And they haven't been. In some cases, applications have been in process for years. And, and you say, well, what, what's, what, what's the problem? Well, on the one hand, you know, uh, professions like to control access to their membership because uh, that in turn uh, increases their bargaining power and their earning power. On the other hand, the public really would like a lot more nurses. Yeah. So you tell me how you sort that one out. Well, exactly. So then are we saying that do we need to change the rules here? Does there need to be more intervention on this? Does the government need to step in? Oh, I, I, I think, one, you, you, you do need to change the way these regulatory bodies are, these self-regulating professions, the way they operate. I, I think, as well, uh, it's not unreasonable. Uh, we have a number of legislative offices in the various parliaments in, in, uh, at the provincial level. And those, uh, like the Ombudsman's Office, uh, Information Privacy Commission Office, typically the, the Auditor General, we have a number of these offices. Well, in those cases... Those officers should be able to oversee and review the, the activity of these self-regulating boards, just like they oversee and regulate and do investigations into the, the public service. Right. So this should concern all of us, though, shouldn't it, Wayne? For instance, I mean, if we have a problem with a doctor or we feel that we were wronged or, you know, for medical malpractice or whatever, shouldn't we have confidence that if we bring that up, something will be done about it? Well, you would like to think you should, uh, and but you know the, the reality is, is is really different, especially if you wander into the area of medical malpractice, uh, and uh, it is extraordinarily difficult uh, f- to carry on successfully an action of that sort. As I said, and not only do doctors have uh, very deep pockets through their legal funds, and the legal funds, as I said, in Ontario, for example. The legal fund is actually funded by the province of Ontario, the taxpayers, so, as part of their economic settlement with, with, with when they negotiate with doctors. So basically, you're going to use your money to, to pursue a malpractice against a doctor who has access to a much deeper well of, of, of funds that you've actually helped provide. So the doctor's going to use your money. You're using your money to fight this while the doctor's also using your money to fight back. That's right. And a process that guarantees your lawyer is going to be engaged uh, probably for, you know, a good chunk of his or his or her career just on your case. Wayne, this sounds like the system is broken. Well, it's a system that that really needs to uh, be reexamined. You know, we fell into this trap uh, some decades ago when broader political changes were uh, going on in this country where we thought... You know, government regulation is red tape. Red tape is bad. And what's better is to let professions regulate themselves. And that way, 
uh, you know, they know what's right and it doesn't become tied up in bureaucracy. And of course, the reality is, is quite the opposite. Uh, you're still tied up in bureaucracy, but now there's no accountability. The minister can always say to the Minister of Health, well, that matter is being considered by the college, right. as if that's somehow an explanation. It's not an explanation. It's, it's me telling you it's not my problem. Wow. Okay. So this is, I'm certainly learning an awful lot this morning. Wayne, thank you so much for your time. Well, you're quite welcome. That's Wayne Petrozzi, who's a professor emeritus in the Department of Politics and Public Administration with Ryerson University, talking about, you know, where's the accountability? So if you see a medical professional online spouting all sorts of misinformation or things that are wrong or selling snake oil, whatever the case may be, the fact is, as Wayne just pointed out, it is incredibly difficult to get anything done about it. And something needs to be fixed. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. The situation in Ukraine is becoming more tense by the day. Countries like the United States, Canada, the UK, vowing to step up reprisals if Russia makes a move. Let's get the latest on what is happening there. Joining us now, Crystal Gomancing, our Global News European correspondent. Crystal, hello. Hi there. Okay, so what's going on? What is the latest? Well, it really is sort of a standoff situation. Nothing has necessarily changed, but everyone's waiting to see, will today be the day that something breaks, that something happens? Of course, yesterday we did hear um, from the government of Canada saying to diplomatic staff in, in Ukraine and with young families that they should leave the country, that followed a similar decision by Americans announcing that, you know, their non-essential embassy staff would also be leaving. That, in many cases, is seen as sort of a precursor to some sort of uh, um, violence or, or, you know, invasion potential. But we haven't seen that as of yet. Dialogue is still ongoing. French President Emmanuel Macron will be having conversations with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Pretty much every world leader at this point has gotten involved in this uh, ongoing standoff between Russia and Ukraine and sort of um, the involvement of the rest of the world. Because, of course, what Russia is asking for doesn't just involve Ukraine, although it does involve Ukraine's sovereignty. Right. And so France obviously trying to get in there and broker things. What is the UK stance? What about the other European countries? Well, everyone has, you know, publicly stated that they support Ukraine. Uh, the UK, the US have not only publicly said that they support Ukraine and that serious actions would be taken, such as sanctions, if there was some sort of uh, breach of the borders of this country, a new breach of the borders of this country. Um, Canada, of course, a longtime supporter. We've had Operation Unifier in this country for a number of years where Canadian military officials have been training Ukrainian soldiers, training National Guardsmen, training police officers. So we've been involved in sort of security and sovereignty in this country for a number of years. I did just this morning sit down with uh, Oleksiy Denilov. He is the Secretary of National Security and Defense Council here in, in Kyiv. And I asked him, what more? What else do you want of Canada? He was grateful for the support and the ongoing support. But he simply said, there's there's three things. One, defensive weapons. Two, defensive weapons. And once more, defensive weapons. We have just yesterday, I saw another shipment. The third shipment of defensive weapons and supplies from the United States. The UK has also done the same. We haven't heard anything from the Canadian government if they're going to 
adhere to that request and, and support them with actually providing weapons. That hasn't happened as of yet. Clearly, the head of the uh, National Security and Defense Council would like to see that happen. And he said, this is not just an issue for Ukraine. The, no other country should feel safe if they are a democracy and they want to save democracy. He says that they have to act now. Okay, so what is the Russian situation? What has Vladimir Putin had to say about all of these countries vowing to come to Ukraine's aid? Well, the, the stance from, from Russia has long been that, you know, he's, he's not really amassing uh, troops on the border, that they are going to be starting military exercises in Belarus. They have done those previously. Uh, but at the same time, we see, um, you know, military videos being publicly shared which show are highly produced, show a lot of heavy machinery. You can see them on the border uh, with Ukraine. There is a sense of um, the military being, you know, poised on the edge of something. However, if you dig into a little bit further, while the numbers are high, the images are, are quite intimidating, they really don't have complete units out there. And a number of experts say one of the things you have to look for is, you know, for example, um, are there complete units? Are there um, field medics with those units? So sort of small tells as to whether or not something will actually happen. Uh, we have heard a number of times the Russian president say that Ukraine is actually the aggressor. And I asked that of um, Alexei uh, Denilov today saying, you know, what, how do you respond to Russia saying that you're the aggressor, you're rallying NATO to be on your side and against Russia? And he, he simply sort of sloughed that off, saying, we're, we're not uh, on Russia's border threatening to come in. They're on ours. Okay, so still some very tense situations there. Crystal, thank you so much for the update. You're welcome. Crystal Gomancing, our Global News European correspondent with the update on the Ukraine situation. This is Mornings with Simi. We know that the people who work on the front lines of our pandemics, and I mean both of them, right, our public health emergencies, not just COVID-19, but also our opioid overdose crisis. We know that the people who work on those front lines are incredibly stressed by that, that, that it's taking a toll on their mental health. Well, now different groups representing Canada's paramedics are calling on different levels of government for improved mental health services to help with things like staff shortages and the unprecedented call volumes that they are seeing. So what can be done to improve their situation and why hasn't anything been done yet? Well, joining us now is Dave Dennis, who's president of the Paramedics Association of Canada. Dave, thank you for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. We've often talked about this situation in terms of how it affects BC's paramedics, but what is the situation across Canada? Yeah, certainly. We know uh, uh, paramedics and paramedic services uh, from coast to coast to coast have seen a dramatic increase in requests for service or call volume uh, as a result of overlapping public health emergencies, both like you've just mentioned, the COVID-19 pandemic as well as the opioid crisis. And then, of course, you, you layer in, in some jurisdictions, the uh, climate uh, crisis that we've seen, for example, in British Columbia with uh, floods and, and fires um, and then uh, on the East Coast with the severe winter weather as well. And so what does that mean for paramedics? Like, is it so it's increased call volume everywhere? Yeah, for the most part, uh, call volumes are up in, in every jurisdiction. Uh, 
that puts uh, an incredible strain on, on a system that normally operates at near close to maximum efficiency in most jurisdictions. And then just like everybody else, paramedics are susceptible to becoming injured and, and ill from uh, various things, primarily uh, COVID. And how does that impact the mental health of paramedics? So what are they having to deal with? Sure, yeah, it's, uh, it's a good question. We know that um, from national research that uh, occupational stressors, things like um, increased call volume, decreased staff availability, um, things like that impact mental health and wellness of paramedics dramatically. Uh, and so when you start uh, bringing things like that in, into the mix, it certainly impacts uh, mental health and wellness and psychological health of, of paramedics. And we just had a call yesterday with the Public uh, Health Agency of Canada talking about all the factors that are impacting uh, service around uh, healthcare in Canada. We know uh, that healthcare workers, public safety personnel, and paramedics uh, suffer a almost twice as high mental health, illness, and injury rate as, as the general public. So you can imagine what those additional stressors are placing on on those services now. So what can be done to help, Dave? What needs to happen? Sure. Well, I'd like to start by saying that paramedics uh, are very resilient and uh, we will continue to be here and serve the public in, in their time of need and during these crises. Uh, certainly, there's some things that, that all levels of government can do. They, there's supports that we can offer to existing staff around psychological well-being. So whether that's, you know, uh, presumptive legislation in some jurisdictions that allows uh, paramedics to access WCB benefits, for example, in some provinces, some increased benefits for psychological uh, counseling and and uh, peer-to-peer services. And then there's other things that governments or, or uh, funders and policymakers can do around those occupational stressors. So, for example, we need to bring more paramedics into the system. Uh, and, and how we do that is a, a complex issue, but certainly just addressing it right off the bat is a, is a good thing. Uh, and then some other policy changes as well. So, for example, in some jurisdictions, the ability to transport patients uh, to places other than overworked and overtaxed emergency departments, uh, the ability to provide alternate means of transport to patients who don't need an ambulance that are calling 911, they're putting that strain on the service for sure. Some good things that we can start with for sure. Now, those are all really good points, but don't you have to deal with those on a provincial level? Like, how do you get those tackled? Sure, and paramedicine in Canada uh, differs in depending on what jurisdiction you are. Health is a provincial uh, responsibility, uh, and then that filters down into how each jurisdiction runs their paramedic service. So, for example, in British Columbia, it's a provincial service uh, that requires um, the will of government to change those things. In other jurisdictions, such as Ontario, uh, those services are downloaded to uh, municipalities or upper-tier municipality county-level decision-makers. Right. I know that you talked about a big one there, though, that I know here in BC we've discussed extensively, and that is just finding help in dealing with mental health calls. How much of a difference would that make? Sure. We know, uh, you know it's not just paramedic. It's all frontline uh, emergency workers that are, are dealing with an increase in, in mental health calls, just in terms of patients, as well as an increase in uh, the need for mental health support for all those workers. So anything we can do to uh, acknowledge that, address that, and provide those supports, I think will go a long way. Do you think you're making progress? Are people in charge hearing you? I think so. For the most part, nationally, uh, there's uh, definitely uh, people are listening. Uh, just like uh, everything else in the pandemic right now, it, it takes, it's going to take some time. 
uh, and resources to change things, and, and nothing uh, in government moves quickly. Uh, but I'm optimistic that we're making we're making good progress. All right, Dave. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you very much. Have a good day. You too. That's Dave Dennis, who's the president of the Paramedic Association of Canada. So those stories that we've heard about, you know, the struggles that paramedics have in BC, that is happening right across the country. And it seems to be a similarity with the issues that are being faced and the things that they need, you know, help dealing with. And that is more paramedics on call. They need some help in dealing with people who are calling with mental health issues as opposed to needing to be transported to the hospital. I mean, we need to maybe get some of those changes worked up into our system. This is Mornings with Simi. Subject matter that may upset and trigger some listeners, so discretion is advised. We are going to talk about what happened at Williams Lake yesterday. An initial sweep of the former grounds at St. Joseph's Mission Residential School in Williams Lake uncovered 93 possible burial sites. And that is just the first phase of the geophysical findings. They started with their land survey and ground penetrating radar back in June. And this is just one site. There were 18 residential schools in B.C., so... Is there more to come? Well, to talk about the impact of this, joining us now is Wayne Sparrow, the Musqueam Indian Band Chief. Wayne, thanks for being with us this morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. What kind of a reaction is the community having to hearing this? I mean, it's not unexpected, but still devastating. Very devastating. Heart, heart-wrenching. Uh, you know, uh, we seen again yesterday on the news what happened in Williams Lake, and we went to uh, the Kamloops uh residential school and it just brings by it's just it's just it's getting harder and harder to watch for me personally watching on the news i i never went to residential school but my parents did my grandfather did my aunts and uncles but to sit here and watch and then watch um chief sellers and their elders and their community to have to uh relive it again and that's the to me is the hardest thing i think a lot of our our survivors here living through and not just here but other communities here in the lower mainland and the province and canada it's just getting uh it's just uh words can't express it so wayne how do you deal with that in your position as the head of you know the musqueam band there you obviously have to deal with a lot of people who are dealing with that right now so how do you what do you put into place what do you do i think the the uh and reconciliation we, we've got to get the, the governments to the table, um, you know, when, when this all uh, broke about what our survivors were saying um, in the past, uh, there was, a, uh, there was uh, monies that were put to the individuals for sending them there, but we have to get programs that here in our own communities that can help uh, mend the wounds that have happened, and uh, we need the, to be in our community uh, services to help those survivors that are still with us. Because you can you can talk about what happened um, and this and the survival. I, I don't want I don't want just money thrown and then saying there we've done our part and walk away. That that that's not how it should work and it shouldn't happen like that. Um, we have numerous band members that are still dealing with the trauma that that that, that they went through and we need to, we need to help them. How do we do that then, Wayne? And is this like what we're this process that is being going through right now that we know there's going to be other residential school sites where we've done this investigation? Is this a good thing? Is it cathartic? 
I think uh, well, uh, to, to uncover what our our communities have been saying and our survivors have been saying uh, is part of uh, the reconciliation and having the government there. But what I'm trying to get to and the point that I can see here, I think, in our community, because I, I have close friends that went to residential school and they have a hard time. And it's it, for them, um, some individuals want to talk about it but we have community members here in Musqueam that don't want to talk about it. And we need, what I was saying is we need to get um, to heal all sides of it and respect the ones that want to talk, the ones that don't want to talk about it, but a big role has to be played by the government. They created these schools. Um, The, the, the churches ran the schools and all parties got to be involved to, uh, to heal and to move forward as a country. That's so interesting what you just said there, though, Wayne, that there are still people, you know, who don't want to talk about it. Is it just that it still opens up too many wounds for some people and they're not prepared to deal with it? Exactly. I don't I don't go. uh, I never gone into any details, but when when it does, you can see it on their faces. So those individuals went through what they went through. Um, You've seen chief sellers talk about what their community went through. There was. There was rape. There was abuse. There was there was uh, punishment. There was starvation. So it it, 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 it just mind boggles me that these schools were all across our country, and and it wasn't just an isolated uh, one or two schools. This happened across the whole country. So how Wayne, does that you know how does that happen? <laughs> That's a good question, uh, Wayne. What happens now? There, what should happen now? Do you think then to reconcile all those different things that you talked about, right? And we don't want this to be forgotten. We don't want people to kind of get used to this news. What needs to happen now? I think, uh, like I just said uh, a little bit earlier, is that the government, uh, our uh, leadership, First Nations leadership, and everything have to come up with plans to do it because you're a hundred percent right. You know. Uh, it, it hit the news with the residential school. What's happened since Kamloops to Williams Lake? What's happened with with the government stepping forward to try to uh, try to get a a, a solution um, that needs to still happen? There's still a lot of work that needs to get done, and I keep stressing that the government and the church have to step forward. So what would you like to see the church do here? I know there have been more calls for, obviously, you know, the Pope to set the example here. What do you think the church needs to do? Well, first of all, ap- apologize. And I know our leadership is going there. Chief Sellers and our national chief and our regional chief are, are were supposed to go and meet with the Pope, um, but got uh, postponed because of the uh, pandemic that we're uh, dealing with. Um, so that's part of the step, and we have to look at our senior leadership, the uh, regional and uh, national chief to uh, bring all the chiefs and the communities along. And, and they're doing a great job of doing that. And we have to stand and support them about uh, moving all of our communities forward. And, and they have a role also to play on representing us. So um, we'll work diligently with them on the Musqueam side with our regional uh, chief here in BC, mm-hmm. uh, Terry TG, and uh, with our national chief. All right, Wayne, listen, thank you so much for talking to us this morning. Okay, have a good day and stay safe. You too. That's Wayne Sparrow, Chief of the Musqueam, talking about the Williams Lake situation and and where we go from here. This is Mornings with Simi.
Now, many of us are spending more time indoors at home than maybe we would like to. We might be noticing some things in our neighborhoods that we haven't noticed before, like maybe noise pollution. Our Raji Silhal joins us now with more. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yes, it's a little bit of a mystery. Like, have you ever heard a noise or like a sound in the distance that's driven you a bit crazy? It's something like a high-pitched tone or maybe some kind of steady ringing If you have, you know it will drive you bananas until you figure it out. Well, people in central Lonsdale, which you know is my neighborhood, um, for several blocks in different directions have reported hearing a steady, loud, but low sound. And the North Shore News ran a piece on it. And a lot of residents in these neighborhoods have experienced, in this neighborhood, have experienced it to the extent that they've called the city and made official complaints. Uh, Especially in the last two months, people have said that it's been really annoying. And some have taken steps to soundproof their walls because of this mysterious sound. What is it though? (laughs) Well, this is the thing. So I walk that area very often. Um, during the day, uh, early in the day, in the middle of the day. And it's reported that people hear it a few blocks radius around the hospital. Well, I can't hear it. And I got in touch with bylaw services manager, Paul Duffy. He said people's descriptions of it are that it's like a constant low humming sound. It's, it's just uh, kind of a low humming sound that uh, some people say they can even feel it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not quite sure on that. I mean, it, it has to be, I think to feel a noise, it has to be pretty loud and pretty close for, for you to feel that. And yet people um, have posted video of like a glass of water um, shaking. You can see the vibration in it from apparently picking up this sound. But seeing as how Paul Duffy hears a lot of these complaints as a bylaw officer, I had to ask him if he hears it. I can't hear the, hear, uh, the sound. And specifically, I think during the daytime, there's just so much uh, ambient noise in, uh, like Central Lonsdale is a very, fairly, uh, it's one of our busiest streets along with Esplanade. So to hear anything uh, beyond, you know, the general noise during the day, it's, it's pretty, pretty tough to distinguish and pick out. All right. This sounds to me like one of these online hearing tests that you do to determine how old your hearing is, <laughs> yeah. Raji. Yes. Yes. Some people can hear it and some people can't hear it. So if bylaw officers can't hear the sound, well, what could possibly be done about it? Well, I was actually surprised to hear how seriously they're taking uh, these complaints. The city has been investigating it. They had Vancouver Coastal Health come do an assessment. Some guesses are that the sound is from uh, the nearby Lionsgate Hospital. You know, hospitals are are loud places. Um, There are steam towers that seem like they could be one of the culprits. There's also, uh, gosh, there's just so much construction in that area. So some have wondered if it's just some kind of equipment that keeps running. People hear this uh, at night too. Um, some say it could potentially be the Lonsdale Energy Corp infrastructure, but uh, Paul Duffy says that it's just so hard to pinpoint. We have people indicating anywhere from kind of the Lynn Valley area to the port noise. And wow. uh, so, so we're, it's, it's a wide area and from what I'm told through our environmental health officers, noise noise can travel great distances, and it's um, and it's kind of um, it's it's almost like a pinball. Uh, you know, it hits a certain 
kind of wall and then it will redirect and then go until it hits something else and then redirect. So. Okay. So how loud is this that we're talking about? How come some people can hear it and others can't? I think, you know, we've been talking about how people have been spending so much more time indoors in their homes during the pandemic. And so I think some residents are just paying more attention to what's happening in their neighborhoods and and changes that they're noticing. The area in question is truthfully really loud. So when I walk in that area, I can't see that I hear it the way that other people report it because, you know, I hear a lot. I can't dis- discern one sound from another when I'm walking around in the middle of the day. But at night, I'm guessing it's it's more of a disturbance for them. And, and technically, noise pollution is a public health disturbance. So that low, steady noise that some folks have complained about might actually be a great source of stress for them um, because they just can't escape it. And the city is still trying to figure out what the source of it is. And this sound hasn't existed always. Um, and then the people that are reporting it, they've been getting more of these complaints um, in the last couple of months. So it's intensified for some reason too. Now, I I wonder if we've got any listeners who happen to live in the central Lawnsdale area, if, if they would let us know if they have heard anything, if they've noticed it. I've had this happen to me before. And it's so funny that this was your story today because actually it happened to me this morning. I came down, yeah, I was, I was getting ready to go to work. And obviously there's nobody up at that hour at my house, but I heard this kind of low grade noise that I had not heard before. And so I actually stopped and I started walking around trying to find out what this noise (laughs) was. Cause I'm like, this is unusual. And it was very low grade, like very low kind of humming. Until I finally figured out what it was. And my husband had recently set up a new computer. And it uh, was the sound. The tower? Exactly. It was the tower. And it was new. So I hadn't heard it before. And so <laughs> yes. that's why. But I walked around and I walked around. I thought, where is that coming from? Where? But I get that feeling. Like when you have it stuck in your head and you're like, I need to know what this is. I have a lot of sympathy for these people. Yeah, well, my kids have such keen hearing. I guess they haven't gone through the the years of, you know, listening to loud music the way that I have in the same way. So, so sometimes I'll wonder if I'm hearing something and I'll use them as my detectors and I'll ask them, do you hear that? And they're like, yeah, it's really loud when it's something that I just hear very faintly. <laughs> the older you get, that maybe is less likely to have happened. Well, let's see if people know what this is all about. Maybe we can help solve the mystery, right? That's great. Thanks, Simi. No problem, Raji. All right, let's see if you can, uh, if you've heard this noise, if you can help figure out what it is. It's in the central Lonsdale area. You can email Raji. You can email me, Simi at cknw.com. But I'm sure a lot of people would thank you if you could help out with